Welcome to Mount Isa Birth Stories. This is a podcast for women who have birthed in Mount Isa to share their stories. We hope these conversations can help our fellow pregnant sisters feel more prepared for their birthing time. If you would like to share yours, please contact us on social media at Mount Isa Birth Stories. There is strictly no naming of our local nurses, midwives and doctors. Please note nothing in these episodes is to be taken as medical advice. Please see your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. Enjoy the episode. In this episode, I was so blessed to be joined by Rhea Dempsey. Rhea is the author of two powerful books, Birth with Confidence and the recently released Beyond the Birth Plan. Rhea is a childbirth educator, speaker, counsellor and a birth attendant with experience at over 1,000 births. Rhea's understanding of birth has been gained over almost four decades of working with pregnant women, their partners, support people, midwives and medical practitioners in home and hospital settings. Rhea is a highly sought after speaker and presenter at conferences, seminars and workshops on birth and counselling issues. She regularly addresses pregnant women and their partners, support people, midwives and medical practitioners. She is recognized as an insightful commentator on the difficulties faced by women who have a yearning for normal physiological birth in navigating the present birth culture. She's also respected as one of Australia's foremost thinkers on the topic of working with pain in childbirth and its connection to normal physiological birth. Rhea has a website called birthwithconfidence.com.au if you wanted more information. And as always, like I always suggest, if you are a little podcast addict, um, if you just search Rhea Dempsey, you will find heaps of other episodes she's done um, with other shows. In our episode, we touch on some of the history of home birth in Australia, how epidurals have impacted the birth space, and what is a crisis of confidence and what is a willing woman. I was so tickled pink to talk to Ria. Please forgive the poor quality of the audio as well, and I hope you enjoy. So, you know, really, I got awakened to birth stuff with the birth of my own first baby, as so many of us do. When that didn't quite go as I had hoped or thought, previous to having my daughter and then being awakened to birth work, I was a physical education teacher and outdoor adventure sort of facilitator and all of that stuff. So really working with the body, you know, and trusting mm-hmm. the body and knowing that the body can do lots of things, and but that also our emotions and feelings can also impact on you know, how our body works and what we can achieve with our body if we get fearful or worried or what have you, that can cramp mm-hmm. us up and not, not allow us to follow our body as it's really is it, the, the potential of the body. So mm-hmm. that was the foundation that I came from anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Then had the, that first daughter, had that experience in the hospital of just feeling like that wasn't supposed to be like that, you know, what, what the fuck had happened there and yeah. then started to become radicalised about birth issues. Uh, then just happened to be at the in the right time at the right place you know came back to Melbourne I'm from Melbourne well from country mm-hmm. Victoria um, mm-hmm. had that first baby in England then came back here and got had home births myself and got involved in the home birth scene and back in that so this is in the 70s late mm-hmm. 70s um, there was no such thing there was no name there was no doulas at that point. I don't mm-hmm. think even in America, which is where it first came from. Wow. But, um, there were those of us who were drawn to just hanging out at birth, you know, and supporting home births because we were reclaiming home births. So 
in a way, if you, you know, the Americans have written the story, but it was happening like that in, in Australia as well. So mm -hmm. if we think about spiritual midwifery, you know, in a May's book, they, yeah. those mid those women who became midwives through that journey were not midwives to start with. So we were learning on the job, being at birth, mm -hmm. um, just, so I guess we called ourselves at that point, when I say us, there was, you know, the numbers of us who are working in this way, particularly around in the Melbourne Victorian era uh, mm -hmm. um, space. Plus, this was happening in other states in Australia as well. And I yeah. guess if we gave ourselves a name back then, we would call ourselves sort of lay midwives. Yeah. That we were midwives. Then, at, because at that time here, and probably in the rest of Australia, the there weren't really medically trained midwives working in the home birth space. There are a few yeah. GPs, um, mm -hmm. some of whom were older and who were used to, you know, a bit more used to home birth or women just getting on and do it and doing the birth and um, the GPs not being, you know, so hand on, not needing to be so hands on. So yeah. GPs then... Was it P with PPs, do you mean like private practicing midwives or something like that? wasn't even invented at that point okay yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. there weren't there just weren't trained midwives yeah, yeah. yeah. Practicing or in the hospital i mean the midwives in the hospital but they weren't in the home birth scene they yeah. were what was in the home birth scene was some gps then women like myself who had been well in fact the first birth that I went to was of a friend of mine having her second baby and I was going along home birth she was working with a GP uh, mm -hmm. I was going along to look after her older child you know the toddler yeah you know how those second babies can go they don't really wait on anybody and it was jumping in and somebody had to catch it and it happened to be me oh, yes. so, so that happened for the first three births I ever attended so then because I was somebody who was seen then to have some experience I was invited mm -hmm. to other births uh, and then there were as I say a few other women around here who were doing the same so we mm -hmm. We didn't have any medical training. If there was a medical concern, then the GPs would come either to the home or meet them in hospital because they were G, what we call GP obstetricians. They'd done their obstetric rotation as a mm -hmm. GP, but they weren't obstetricians. You know, they weren't fully, yes. they hadn't done their full work. So this yeah. was what was happening in the home birth scene for quite some years. Mm -hmm. Then, over time, some of the medically trained midwives who had been working in the hospitals mm -hmm. jumped out of the hospitals and started to work in home birth. So we had a number of them. And so at that point, then we had mid trained midwives. They would have all been nurses before they'd become midwives, as you're talking about. Yeah. They were coming to midwives, working also with the GPs. And then there were myself and some of the other experienced lay women experienced at births mm -hmm. uh, at home births that then i guess then that started to differentiate between the medical watching over as mm -hmm. well as then those of us who probably had a bit more of a psychological take about what was going on mm -hmm. um, but at that point i was also a childbirth educator I'd done my childbirth education training at that point so at that point and when I first started to run a training course for other women who, who wanted to do that work, I called my course a birth attendant trainer or a birth okay. attendant course. 
Mm -hmm. so, so from lay midwife to, uh, which we didn't feel we could keep calling ourselves lay midwives when really medically trained midwives were coming in. So yeah. then I called myself a birth attendant. Mm -hmm. That was during the time when the word doula was coming in out of America to describe that, yeah. that role. And yeah. from my point of view, I've never really liked the word doula. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of wish that we in Australia had claimed a beautiful Aboriginal word for that work or something. But yeah. sort of the word doula now connotes it's well and truly embedded all around the world. And so... Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what people would call me in terms of the work that I do a doula and yeah. educator and um, mm -hmm. now of course an author. Well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you know, yeah. Did you notice like when you first seen the midwives coming from the hospital into the home birth, um, like did you observe different ways that they did things? Like was it a shock? Um, to see maybe how they practiced in the home setting? Like, was there differences that you noticed? Well, um, in a way, thinking back, these midwives who came to start to do home births, of course, either through their own birth experiences, but these were midwives who wanted to be doing birth differently. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were, even way back then, you know, just like you're feeling now, very... Mm -hmm very constrained and not at all aligned with the medical practices about midwifery. So they were sort of ripe to jump and have yeah. a go. And they yeah. used to talk about that they were learning from us, the, the, the lay midwives who'd been around. So it was actually a beautiful sort of harmony between mm -hmm. um, the way we all worked, that they were watching over medically. They were also so beautifully um, attuned to the women. Mm -hmm. And we then, whether you called us lay midwives or birth attendants or doulas, those mm -hmm. of us who did that work here in Melbourne, at least, and I know this was the same pattern that happened in other states, then mm -hmm. it was just a, you know, a beautiful combination of, of skills, I guess, and awareness of birth. So they were learning yeah. from us, we were learning a bit from them. Mm -hmm. So they, they, when they came in, they really they just held that space respectfully and mm -hmm. would just do the sort of, I was going to say bare minimum. I don't mean that they were very attuned to the medical as well as the, as well yeah. as the emotional and physical, but certainly mm -hmm. they weren't, they, they weren't, um, it didn't feel like, as you were suggesting, you know, yeah. where that happened was of course, if we ever had to transfer to hospital, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of grief in that transfer in terms of the way we were, that we were all treated, including the, mm -hmm. the midwives. And um, yeah. and also in that early time, I wasn't, when I started to be a childbirth educator, I wasn't only attending home births, but also going into the hospital. And certainly that was, mm -hmm. that was much more fractious how all of that worked. That's, that's a, there's a bit more harmony in all of that now in terms of doulas going into hospitals but yeah right and have you noticed a difference um when a home birth transfer happens um has that become more pleasant as time progresses or because i know like joe hunt has done a lot of work with like vexatious reporting yeah. of all these home birth midwives are you finding it's getting worse or getting better okay so um you know i've been working doing this work for about 42 years so i'm talking about decades here yeah, and in the in the initial time when we were doing home births and we had to transfer, then yes, we weren't we weren't treated very well. Neither was the woman. 
mm-hmm. mean, she was treated medically, but I mean, we were given a hard time. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was a period of time that, like, this is probably probably through the mid '80s to the mid '90s, and uh, there's a whole lot of political action going on in the birth scene to to have these things changed. But mm-hmm. one of the hospitals here in Melbourne had a designated team for home birth transfers. Oh, cool! To come in, and so there was a lot of respect in that situation. So that lasted for quite some time. So that was sort of. That was good. Now, mm-hmm. of course, it's gone back to, as Joe's documenting, that many of the midwives who do transfer or what have you, that you know, they're often being called yeah. up in the upper and what have you. So mm-hmm. I hear that that seems to be, depending on which hospital, which midwife, it's a little bit more... Mm. It's not like across the board. Some hospitals are still yeah. good. Others, it's very adversarial. But we had a, I've heard just recently, there's been a um, a win, if you like, in that mm-hmm. one of the groups of midwives here working in a more regional area in Victoria, when they transfer, had been getting a very hard time at the hospital from the hospital mm-hmm. personnel and being reported to APRA. But mm-hmm. APRA now have made a ruling that they've looked at all of those and all of the complaints have been dropped against the midwives and APRA have made a statement about that it looks oh, like cool. there's something quite pointed going on in terms of that, you know, those different, um, I guess, mindsets about birth that are reflected in the hospital caregivers yeah. and home so so hopefully that will get more midwives more of the home birth midwives will be will be finding that there's a bit of a softening and and i guess mm. in all ways it's, it's about getting that collegial you know feeling that the mother and the baby are of course are central and mm-hmm. what's best for them and that mm-hmm. we're watching them as as respectful colleagues to find a way to work that 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 creates the best experience for the woman if she needs that medical care and mm-hmm. also to yeah to boost her hormones by treating her well and treating her, her yeah. care well. I think a lot of just the average Joe are confused as to why would a woman not want to go to the hospital we've got free healthcare in Australia um, medically trained midwives and um, doctors who have been to university etc yeah. do you like try do you want to like shed some light for some people as to like why would a woman want to be at home with yeah. a doula by herself with a midwife um, like why wouldn't every woman not yeah. want to be an, in a maternity unit yeah it's a mindset isn't it <laughs> the, the cultural mindset I guess so many things I could say. Let me just try and nail yeah, it's a big, <laughs> big one. Sorry. Yeah, but I think that first of all, of course, the, so the the cultural, the social and cultural mindset about birth is that it's sort of dangerous and that things can go wrong. Lots of things can go wrong, and so then therefore it's placed into that medical framework, and of mm-hmm. course if that's a medical framework, then of course we think hospital and the social and cultural norm is that births happen in hospital in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, 98% of babies are born in hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's embedded as a way of thinking about birth. Mm-hmm. I think also there's a bit of a, you know, because in Australia we haven't had a continuous um, experience of home birth. You know, yeah. years, years ago, we used to, you know, babies were born at home. My, my parents were born at home, for instance. Um, yeah. 
so that was a norm mm -hmm. but then that stopped and birth was taken into hospital whereas mm -hmm. there are other countries you know like england and new zealand what have you and and the netherlands particularly who still have quite strong home birth cultures and mm -hmm. home birth which is sort of um recognized as an uh, you know a, an okay choice within the whole context of the maternity situation whereas yeah. in Australia the same as in America home birth stopped so then it was sort of in the the late 60s 70s that home birth started to be reclaimed mm -hmm. um, but of course it was those it was those terrible hippies who were yes. <laughs> reclaiming it and so mm -hmm. even though the research about home birth is so brilliant across the world and also in Australia it's still like home birth is is um got this uh, smear if you like of oh it's just hippie stuff and it's irresponsible people or something like that so i think there's yeah. those sort of things going on mm -hmm. um whereas in as i say in the countries where they've had a continuous home birth scene even though less people were giving birth at home and many of them did go to hospital but mm -hmm. nonetheless there doesn't seem to be that same antagonism about you know home birth in the same way it is here so that's one of the mm -hmm. aspects Mm -hmm. um, then of course and I know you've read my first book you know where I'm talking about that uh, that idea that I call a willing woman yes a willing yeah. woman. so mm -hmm. many years ago when I was having my baby that that was during the time when we we're trying to the, culturally there are groups of women who are wanting to try and claim back natural birth Mm -hmm. And that was trying to claim it back instead of being part of all those very strong drug regimes like twilight sleep and heroin mm. used and what happened. Mm. Mm -hmm. so natural birth was about still birthing in hospital, but, but not having any drugs. Yeah. Then, um, but of course, since then, the hospital routines and practices and control over women, of course, has got stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. all of the intervention rates have just gone through the roof yeah but when i first started you know the the seizure rate was probably somewhere about eight to ten percent which which mm. the world health organization would say was really around the the appropriate level of intervention for seizures to do with really true medical need whereas yeah. now of course we have a seizure rate that's 35 percent mm. So unless Australian women are just incredibly unwell and their babies, then that's something about our cultural ways of thinking about birth and the practices in particular in the hospitals. So mm -hmm. for willing women who want to have a go at nat natural birth or normal birth or what I call normal physiological childbirth, yeah. they know, and if they're savvy, they, they know that the hospital is not suiting them. It's not going to, not going to give them that opportunity to be supported into that sort of birth that mm -hmm. they can spend time you know declining or fighting to get some space to get on and do the job of it and we know that starts to to mess around with the hormones so yeah. many women who understand about birth physiology and want to have a go at normal physiological childbirth know that mm -hmm. they have to protect themselves in, in some way from what is on offer in the hospital so that mm -hmm. leads some of them to want to have the home birth or some of them try and get into the birth centers and but they're not so many of those anymore so yeah. that's the so then if they're going into the hospital but if they're a willing mm -hmm. woman and they're going into the hospital they really have to work strongly with their birth plan and and hopefully be in situations where they're working with those known midwives but remember mm -hmm. that only eight percent of women can access those sorts of um you know 
programs. So mm-hmm. all of the things that, we, that the research tells us is good for normal physiological childbirth are very hard for women to access in the present hospital situations. Yeah. So for women who want that and are savvy about that, as I say, some of them are choosing home births. And of course, we also know that some of them are choosing free births. Mm. And the free bursting is about a, a, a you know hospital or the maternity care system, which is very um, interventionist. And for many women, that then can become traumatizing. Mm-hmm. So there are some women who are just opting out of that system because they feel like they're not going to go back in that trauma and what have you. And yeah, and also like with the access to, um, yeah. I just think if hospital staff and hospital midwives truly do think free birth is ridiculous and silly like they need to start up in their game <laughs> because it's often the hospital is the reason why these free birth, like women are choosing free birth it's perplexing when they criticize and um yeah like go hard on that mom that chooses that option with no reflection on them themselves and the practices hey like mm-hmm. or or providing separate to the issue about trauma but providing the sorts of stressful issues in the birth culture that we know uh, what the research says is what's needed for safe and um, you know normal physiological births and mm-hmm. then the hormonal flow over between the mother and the baby and so on and, and all of that good stuff yeah the world your listeners might might not be aware of this maybe i'll just talk through some stats for a minute yeah 100 percent. yeah so the world health organization say as i mentioned before that no country in the world should need a seizure rate higher than between 10 and 15 percent for true medical need and if any country has a seizure rate higher than 15%, they suggest that they're making, that country is making more problems in their health, in the ongoing health of their mm. citizens than they're solving. And as I said, we've got a seizure rate of 35%. That's one. Mm. Mm-hmm. The World Health Organization also suggests that no country in the world would need an induction rate higher than 10% if we're thinking truly about true medical need. And mm-hmm. our induction rate now in Australia is 33%. Mm. So this is showing this discrepancy between what's needed in terms of you know, medical things, things medically unfolding, not, not working well. And so mm-hmm. then therefore those brilliant interventions to, to, to keep that mum and baby safe. You know, we love mm-hmm. them all when they're, when they're applied in a situation of true need. But if mm-hmm. we compare those figures, and there's a hell of a lot of other things, other pathways, which, um, you know, I discuss in that first book of mine about what the other pathways are that lead women down to these interventions that don't have to do with their, with medical need, but have to do with the, the way the culture is, the way it works, and in particular, you know, pain dynamics and, and so on. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. if women were to understand, because I think, and why wouldn't they? if women know anything about the level of these statistics of these interventions without mm-hmm. unpacking how that happens, of course, they're going to be left with a feeling that birth is a very dangerous situation. It needs lots of care and interventions and what have you to make it work. So mm-hmm. it ends up shifting their mindset to that fearful one where they feel like, well, of course you must be in a hospital and you must have that best care. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of education yeah. <laughs> to, to have women be more trusting about birth and to understand that 
if we mm -hmm. follow the research, have good contact with midwives who are attuned to how to support the hormones and, you know, mm -hmm. and anyway, we know so much more about the hormones, you know, we're so, so yeah. when, I, when I was first started, you know, in the, in the home birth, we didn't I don't think anybody knew very much about the hormones. Wow. But you just instinctually knew like how to protect them, I guess. Exactly. Well, in that home space, women's feeling safe. We didn't really know what that meant in terms of the hormones. We just knew that when she settled in and we settled in, you know, the labor would get going. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Or, or if we found that the labor wasn't going so well, mm -hmm. we would like, you know, again, if you read uh, spiritual midwifery, the midwives would then have a chat to the couple, you know, well, what's going on? In yeah. So that's yeah. Now, yeah. Though, of course, you can translate that all down to what that means in terms of the hormones, mm -hmm. whether they're feeling that loving bond and feeling safe or whether there's argy bargy going on with their partner or somebody mm. else in the birth space and so on. So it's pretty, yeah. uh, from my point of view, I think it's pretty privileged to have worked across such a long period of time and seeing yeah. the, these sort of movements and shifts out how they how they're coming through, and to to marvel at how much more knowledge we have now, but it doesn't seem like that knowledge is necessarily translating into supporting women to to have better births. So yeah. we, as educators, we just well, we just can't shut up. We just got to keep talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I it's, say one other thing about that? That I also feel very privileged that so being involved in the home birth scene at that point. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively. I was involved in, there were a lot of birth centres in Melbourne at that point too. So I was involved in, in helping to set those up and being part of that. A lot of political work in there, not only myself, but others. Yeah. Um, that we were, even though we didn't understand the, the, the academic aspect about the hormones, I guess instinctively we were seeing ha how to help a birth along, you know? Yeah. And, and so through that time, through probably, you know, the first 20 years of my birth work, I was privileged to be in situations of seeing over and over and over again, normal physiological childbirth. Yeah. Because of either the home births, the birth centers, or the interventions weren't so aggressively, you know, apparent. Point. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. I was working, as were others who were working at that time, we were working before the fucking epidural came in and, mm. and hijacked normal physiological <laughs> yes um do you wanna, yeah so you would have you have just seen every like you would have i can't imagine what that would have been like to see what birth was before the epidural i can't because it's just so ingrained it's just a part of the process for so many women now and like you said like we're all socialized like do you feel like you know, like how you talk about the crisis of confidence and things like that. Like so many women are just so scared of birth yeah. or even like when they're told stories from their mothers who had traumatic births. Sometimes I'm like, are you traumatized from the birth, birth, birth or what they did to you in the birth? You know, it's all a mess. Yeah. Um, but do you think that's where the epidural is just like pervasive because it's just, I'm so scared. I don't even want to think about reading a book that might change my mind or, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when the epidural first came in, those of us working, well, it's, it came in, you know, softly, softly. And mm -hmm. like all of those interventions, when they're, they're all were designed to deal with specific medical problems and situations in birth. 
Mm -hmm. So the epidural, when it first came in, even us, you know, natural birth, home birth, you know, goddesses or um, mm -hmm. you know, really wanting to be involved, we welcomed those epidurals in because we saw that really in some situations, if the baby was in a, you know, we tried everything, but the baby's position wasn't good and the, the labor wasn't going well, or it was just so excruciating for the, for the mother for whatever reason, but the, we thought those epidurals are going to be so brilliant. Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're going to offer that bit of pain relief. The mother will still be be conscious and able to to know what's going on, as opposed to being totally drugged out with more of the the um, like the morph morphine and pethidine and things like that. Or yes, so so we welcome them in. Mm -hmm. What we what we didn't have the foresight to think about was that they were eventually going to just hijack everything. The epidural. Mm -hmm. And become then part of just the you know now to such a point that you know people would say well why would you know why on earth wouldn't you have an epidural why yeah. would you deal with that mm -hmm. all of that stuff whereas you know the research on on epidurals in terms of how that hijacks the birth this is some you know you might have read this part in the book but this was something that I hadn't quite put together for apart from a few years, maybe a bit more than a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But because the epidural so changes what happens in the hormones and in the, you know, it wipes out the oxytocin, it changes the dynamic between the mother and the baby and so on. You know, so we've got all these stats showing us what epidurals do in terms mm -hmm. of more babies getting infections, more babies needing to be in special care. Mothers can't push so well, they can't feel the baby, so more higher rate of seizures, higher rate of forceps, in fact, all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a while to see that actually those two things, you know, the epidural had become just so socially normalized as the only way to do a birth is one, one side of the equation. Mm -hmm. The other side of the equation is high rates of intervention and not only high rates of intervention, intervention for just because you choose them, but high rates of intervention because the births don't go well. Mm -hmm. Of course, those two things are linked that if yeah. the epidural is used, the birth doesn't go well. And then we eventually have to save the baby, mm -hmm. save the mother. Yeah. Whereas I don't think that many women understand that link. They hear about all these interventions and that feeds that feeling that birth is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. They also hear about the story about, oh, you've got to have an epidural. That's the only way to do it. And they don't put together that because of the epidural, this is why then those interventions are needed. They, they feel that they're two separate things. Mm -hmm. The epidural is just a choice that you can make. It makes it so much you know easier in terms of no pain and no distress mm -hmm. more emotional challenge but mm -hmm. then yeah. that makes so it's like it's a vicious cycle of feeling more and more fearful rather than being able to draw those two see that those two things are linked say, mm -hmm. okay if we didn't use the epidural at such high rates um so many of these things that then eventually go wrong wouldn't mm -hmm. be happening and so then yeah. we wouldn't be so fearful so yeah. that's my mission at the moment yeah because i think some women think birth happens the birth would happen the same no matter where you are yeah. and then yeah. they see an epic like they get an epidural and then shit goes down after that but yeah. then 
they think, oh, that would have happened with or without the epidural. Like they don't uh, realize where you are, who you're with, if there's been anesthesia in your spine, how that impacts on birth. And you could have perhaps avoided some of that. Um, But then it's so tricky because I feel like with social media and everything, which is great in a lot of ways, but then there's just all this mothering guilt. Like so many women link how they are as a mother to if they had an epidural or not. And you can't say too much. Well, you can, but... I I mean, I feel like to be educated. It's like the epidural is sort of offered just like a lolly, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. a lot of, and I know, you know, I do far too much birthday briefing now. It just breaks my heart. And Mm. and we'll say, well, it's it's just offered to me as if it's, you know, I just assume the epidural is just, you know, hasn't got any downsides and hasn't got this and it's just a way of doing birth. And mm-hmm. then, of course, that whole cascade of intervention comes and then they wonder what's happened. But they haven't, it's like the culture is just saying, yes, epidural, have an epidural. This, this is a wonderful way to have a birth. Mm-hmm. The, detail, the full mm-hmm. details about what that epidural does. So that's, that I, for me, I just feel like I want to just educate about that epidural yeah so and what for like i'm guessing women or like some dudes that listen to this podcast they're probably into birth well like um if they are so scared like you know like working with pain and things like that um yeah. and being a willing woman yeah. uh what type of things do you think especially like those first time mums or first or second time mums who have had a horrible experience with an epidural or without um like how do you get around like I'm gonna have a baby I'm gonna go through birth I don't want any interventions like where do you begin like yeah 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 well I'm trying you know my my books I'm trying oh yes your book is I've never I bought it and I never have it because whenever anyone gets pregnant I'm like yeah you gotta read this one you gotta read this one (laughs) person with confidence that one yeah like a bit of the birth culture you know um, that sometimes those interventions are suggested for all sorts of other bureaucratic and, and you know flow through in the hospital reasons rather than because of medical needs so there's a whole lot of things there about how the interventions happen um, mm-hmm. and then how women come out of that so um, just at the moment isn't it in this political dialogue and what have you this whole thing about transparency transparency yeah. well if mm-hmm. the birth culture you know, if women were given information based on this idea of transparency about birth, that would be a problem, but I, it would. I don't see it happen very often. Um, no. Or to any, some of us are trying, you know, to say, um, you know, just because, well, one of the things that we're noticing just here in Melbourne is that um, it seems that lots of women are getting, having the conversation with their, the obstetric team, whether that's in a public hospital or their obstetrician, talking about either they're a bit worried that the baby is a bit small, coming up to mm. about you know 38, 37, 38 weeks, or they're a bit worried that the baby is too big, mm. and they really feel that we could induce or even do a Caesar or something because it's going to be a problem, you know, only mm. to find that the baby's come out about average size and with you know, but those interventions. Yeah. So it's like these these questions yeah. about, and so presumably that if that's being suggested it's not based on obviously what is happening with the the baby because it's not too small and it's not too big um Mm -hmm. it's something more about what is happening in the hospital systems or what is happening with those particular caregivers so if that Mm -hmm. was true you know if that was if that was dealt with transparently so maybe i'm going to make a slightly bigger point not just on that example yeah 
you know, sometimes um, things are offered in the birth, in the hospital, and can be late in pregnancy, that are based around um, how the hospital staffing is working, how many women, you know, like if it's a full moon and they, they know pretty well they're going to get more, more babies being born over the next mm -hmm. few days. And then they've got to make decisions about how, well, how many staff do they have on? Have they got enough or do they have to get more on or, or don't they need so many or what have you? Then if that were explained to women, I remember in the Mercy Hospital here in Melbourne a few years ago over the Christmas, the, the Easter full moon, yeah. they had 74 births in 72 hours. So well. <laughs> that's got to be managed. So yeah. but instead of saying to the woman, I'm not, uh, you know, maybe this did happen at the Mercy or not. Obviously it didn't because there were so many there. But if they were to say to the woman, look, the hospital, we know that there's usually a spike around a full moon. We're likely to be under the pump with all these babies. How about we induce you the week before or, or you know, 10 days mm. before so that we get some of these births out the way and then it won't be such a strain on the staffing issues or the women who do come at that point will have more care. How about we do that? Yeah. Or that, um, you know, it's a change of shift or something in the hospital happening and... Um, Look, we just think it'd be good for you to come in and be induced because that would be helpful to the situation. You know, your baby's fine, you're fine, but it would be great help to us if you come and get induced. Yeah. Or if we put the drip up now when you're in hospital, just speed this up because that'd be a lot better, you know. The day starts <laughs> off soon or it's the weekend. It'd be much, you know, we'd like to get these births over and done with, you know, mm -hmm. so the weekend staff is not so many people around or what have you. If they yes. were to say that to women, then some mm -hmm. women would just say, oh, it's okay with me. Yeah. But other women would feel like, oh, no, I don't want that. But mm -hmm. not said like that to women. It's not no. said. What is said is that there seems to be something wrong with the baby, all wrong with you. And so mm -hmm. this builds that fear in birth so mm -hmm. that the woman feels like her body doesn't work, whereas, in fact, that's not the agenda about how come this is happening. I mean, in, a, in a small numbers of cases, it would be about really true medical need. But often mm -hmm. these are ways to shape a birth in these big bureaucracies that have got other um, well, agendas, but also other needs about how they, those hospitals work that can mm -hmm. mean that things are told to the woman as if it relates to her body and or her baby in order to get that compliance. Yeah. Whereas in reality, the story is about, you know, other things happening in the hospital that need to be managed. Yeah. And I, that's what I, I sometimes like you see and hear um, just simple questions to the doctor or the midwife, like, okay, so how small is my baby? And, and what happens if I don't get induced and how many babies like, you know, cause I feel like they rattle off um, big sentences. And if you're not somebody in the healthcare field or you're not familiar with language, you're like, Oh, okay. Like I've got a small for gestational age baby and these things can happen. Um, and then they kind of blanket on the end, like, you know, those baby at risk, high risk, high risk, high risk. <laughs> they just repeat high risk. Um, and that's it. And I'm like, I've seen a few times like women who are like, Oh, and how many, like uh, a compromise, like how many would die? And they don't know the answer and you can walk it back. I think, exactly. um, but that's the thing. If women don't, if they're not aware they can, if they don't have that voice, then you just get railroaded. And then some women don't care. Like obviously some women, it's just, they're happy to get the epidural and be induced, you know, but some of them want that. And they, yeah. you know, they can be well served actually. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you know, well suited for the hospital. Well suited and well because they can usually easily access those interventions if that's what they want, you know, the mm -hmm. induction or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. It's more the women who still have that sort of quiet wish and hope for some sort of natural, normal birth. Mm -hmm. That the way the hospitals, the medical system run it, is not attuned to how to help them. They're the women who, who don't often get what they want. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, that's uh, they're the they're the women that I'm particularly attuned to and working with. Yeah. So the, the, those women have to be very informed and very um, mm -hmm. asking all those questions, as you say. They also mm -hmm. need to know. I mean, it's very difficult, though. I don't know, if, you know, exactly how it is where you are, but presumably there are not too many choices for, you know, if there's one mm -hmm. hospital that, that what that is is mm -hmm. has very high intervention rates and if there was another one that had less intervention rates and less interventionist practices well then women could make a choice between those but mm -hmm. if you've only got one hospital and that's a much harder gig to to yeah. be trying to get something different for yourself in the context mm -hmm. of only one way of doing it because there's only one hospital so yeah or then of course it may well be also and again i don't fully understand uh, how it what the system is where you're where you live and where you practice but mm. you know maybe if women have got to travel a long way from mm. out of town or somewhere to get to the hospital for the birth um mm. then maybe it's easier for everybody all around to plan a day for the induction and so then you're in there and that happens rather than waiting on the spontaneity of birth mm. which you know when it happens so there there are not necessarily always about medical need and standing on that sometimes you know mm -hmm. some of these making choices out of what i call sort of a social choice because of the social situation sometimes mm -hmm. that's a, that's the best choice to make so yeah um yeah complex all of, all of those things particularly yeah. in country areas mm -hmm. yeah we're like we've got one hospital and um like the next town along is probably Townsville, I'm guessing, but people go to Brisbane as well. But we're talking about nearly a thousand kilometres to Townsville. Um, and there's a lot of Indigenous communities and the women come to Mount Isa to birth. Um, so there is like a little bit more high risk, they say, um, with that as well, with some of the health conditions, um, like chronic health conditions and things like that. Um, but yeah, if you're a woman who doesn't want to go back to the hospital or just, you know, doesn't want to birth, there's no options really but we do have mgp which is awesome oh, brilliant yeah really good and there's a bunch of mgp midwives and things like that so many women um if you're low risk can get onto that um but all, like then once again a lot of the high risk women who have so much going on don't yeah. have that continuity of care and it's like oh yeah. but in saying that we we only really have two main um obstetricians so you could say in some sense they are seen you know they get they do get to know the obstetricians if they're at the hospital um, yeah. quite often so yeah. that's a positive i suppose about that about having a small town and one hospital yeah. Um, Except if but, only because the, a lot of women, of course, put their, um, they make that connection with the obstetrician, and particularly, as you say, by default, it's like a continuity of care with that obstetrician. Mm -hmm. But of course, unless those obstetricians that work up there spend all those hours with the women and eye contact and working, you know, breathing with them and encouraging them how to, how to work with contractions, it's not quite the same, is it? As, as no. Continuity of care midwife. That's no, we've got them, but what? So it's a the continuity of care program is for low risk women, not for all risk women. Yeah, low risk. Great so. risk, all risk. 
I mean, that's yeah. that would be the political thing. If I if I had the energy to do polit more political work around this, it would be that driving that thing about continuity of care, midwifery continuity of care for all risk. Mm -hmm. so the research is just gold about everything to do with continuity of care midwives. If you could, um, like, if you could wave a wand and like change one thing, what would it be? Like it be in that. Australia, it would be that. Yep. It would be yep. That it would be continuity of care midwifery, mm -hmm. and um, well, it's maybe two prongs. It would be continuity of care midwifery with with midwives who are coming through direct entry midwifery programs. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in the main, at least around here, Melbourne, many mm -hmm. midwifery group mid midwives working in continuity of care programs have been trained as you know in the in the um, direct entry courses. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be one thing and, yeah um and of course somehow or other for women to start to feel and trust their bodies and the, the you know the beautiful capacity of their bodies to grow their babies mm -hmm. and to birth them yeah in <laughs> strong and healthy ways without um you know dismantling some of that mm -hmm. that information that's in their head that causes them to be fearful that would be great mm -hmm. but, um, so here's the phys ed teacher in the year coming out mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know that we can do lots of things with our bodies that you know we can get fit we can run marathons we can do fun runs do they do fun runs in mount isa um yeah there's there's a bit of a fitness culture they kind yeah. of run around <laughs> well so people who have a fitness uh, involved in a fitness culture know that in order to you know keep upping their fitness or to take on those challenges that mm -hmm there's they have to work with functional physiological pain yeah they have to mm -hmm. work with those muscles burning and the breath i'm not getting enough breath and all of that that challenge of functional physiological pain mm -hmm. that we know has nothing to do with danger or damage or anything going wrong it has to do with your body working well and strong at sort of peak performance level mm -hmm. um, peak performance for you so that, mm -hmm. that idea, and I guess people who are engaged in that, if as they're running a fun run or whatever, they reach the, those ideas, that, that, those spaces that we call in that regard, you know, hitting a pain barrier, mm -hmm. and that when they hit a pain barrier, you know, either they stop because they, they can't, they don't have the support to, to go through that, or of course, often when they hit a pain barrier they need that good support of some you know the people running beside them or doing that thing with them and encouraging them on or helping to breathe with them or you know that sweet talk of yes you can yes you can all of that stuff mm -hmm. um, and when they go through that pain barrier then they get that hit of endorphins and that gives them some uplift and some extra energy to keep going so many people who work with their bodies men and women who work with their body towards their fitness or their you know the, that, that idea of being challenged and completing challenges mm -hmm. many people know that and trust that and know that that's the pathway functional physiological pain have to be up there yeah. mm -hmm. but in terms of and in fact so in reality that's what birth pain you know what the whole thing about birth is that the 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 strengthening contractions of labor if you've got a if you've got any big hill hills or something in around Mount we Island, do telstra hill <laughs> pamela oh. street hill we do yeah okay so so a birth is like thinking about that the start of the fun run is at the base of the hill mm -hmm. choose whichever one you're the biggest one 
yeah. and the finish point, the finish line is at the top. So that mm -hmm. if you are doing that as a fun run, you know, it means that the whole intensity of the functional physiological pain is building as you go. Mm -hmm. um, so birth is a bit like that, that the contractions get stronger, longer, closer together. So that functional physiological pain is intensifying through the labor as mm -hmm. are the hormones and as are the hormones that give you that support for surrendering to that, that intensity. But if we're staying with this analogy with say doing this fun run, you know, as you're going up that hill, you these points that you reach where you're feeling like it's you know i'm hitting a pain barrier and why the, why the hell did i get up this morning i hate this i can't do it anymore mm -hmm. it's going to stop or unless they've got some buddies that are helping you know they they all get through it together mm -hmm. so i feel like in birth this is that thing this idea of a crisis of confidence that women reach these crises of confidence in labor which is a bit like that hitting a pain barrier it's mm -hmm. not it's not a medical crisis there's nothing going wrong mm -hmm. baby's fine mother's fine it's just that it's one of these natural sort of intensification points in the labor where the mother has to sort of move into it with a new groove a new depth of breathing a new dance that she might be doing um mm -hmm. to engage with that that greater intensity so mm -hmm. that's when those contractions jump up like that in, in intensity, a lot of women in the first instance just get a bit shocked and can and disorganized about oh what now? You know, I was okay mm -hmm. for the last few contractions and now what's going on now? Can I, can I, can I? Don't like it, all of that. So that's what I call a crisis of confidence. Mm -hmm. their, their, their sense of capacity to be able to do it is shaken. Mm -hmm. um, and that at those times of those crises, unless they've got somebody with them who understands this and can help them to steady their breathing and to, um, you know, change their, the way they're working with the contraction to, to accommodate to this greater intensity and then get on a new groove with that greater intensity. Mm -hmm. What we know is, of course, that if they can't be supported through those crises of confidence, generally the epidural will come in or the drugs will come in and then that hijacks that process yeah 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 so that crisis of confidence so i guess what i talk about when i'm talking about this to couples you know if you're wanting to do that fun run say it happened to go up that that hill you're not going to have you're not going to be relying on somebody who has never run a step in their life and expect <laughs> them to be able to encourage you and for you to have trust in what they say to you you want mm -hmm. somebody who's done this before who knows it's possible who knows mm -hmm. that it's possible for you and can encourage you on so mm -hmm. the crisis of confidence is when this is when you need that continual care midwife who's seen this all before understands it as a normal part of the process is able to and you trust the, the mother you know the birthing woman trusts that midwife because she's been you know, she mm -hmm. made that relationship and that midwife then, then, you know, gives a bit of guidance about, well, maybe now in the shower or maybe now change, let's try this deeper breathing or maybe now the tub. I don't know whether they can get in tubs where you are um, mm. or maybe some dancing or maybe now some heat pack or what have you. And to keep them moving through that crisis mm -hmm. and yeah. it's a well-supported crisis by somebody, you know, and trust in labor, you know, maybe it lasts four, five, six contractions. You know, maybe it yeah. lasts somewhere between, I don't know, 10 minutes to 20 minutes. It's not mm -hmm. the whole labor, 
but mm -hmm. they're crucial moments because if the mother can't be supported through them and normalize them and find a new groove out the other side of them, of course, mm -hmm. the, the drugs and the epidural are going to hijack the whole deal mm -hmm. with, with all the consequences we talked about before. So that mm -hmm. idea of a crisis of confidence, that, I, that first book is about, you know, so much of that came out of my own understanding, having been a phys ed teacher. And yeah. also I just over the years of my birth work have worked with lots of people who worked in the theater, you know, actors and theater people and mm -hmm. music people. And they talk about a crisis of confidence in terms of, you know, well, you, you know, your lines and everything, but then you're in front of the audience. And so then you just go into this whole crisis that you feel like you can't do it. And unless you've got, you know, good, good, um, directors and people around you who can encourage you forward or you know, many mm -hmm. of us, or you're doing your PhD or you're doing your midwifery training or what have you, we reach mm -hmm. these crises of confidence where we feel like it's too much. We don't know how to go on. And really the sort of support we get at those times will either take us through that crisis and on to what we're hoping to achieve, whether it's a birth or a PhD or, a, or, or your year 12 exams or running that fun run. Mm -hmm. if you don't get that positive support then of course you're not going to make that achievement if somebody yeah. wants to save you or if they suggest you know the drugs or i'll give up mm -hmm. that acting career or whatever yeah. you're not yeah. going to get that achievement so uh, explaining that to people and mm -hmm. i find that explaining that particularly to the partners to mm -hmm. understand in terms of that functional physiological pain mm -hmm. as opposed to because we stick birth in a hospital, of course, a lot of people think that the pain and the pain escalating is about things going wrong. Mm -hmm. Because if yes. you're in a hospital for anything else, it would be mm -hmm. a sign that things are getting worse and worse and worse. Yes. Whereas we know that in birth, things are getting better and better and better. Yes. So when the partners yeah. understand that, that often gives them a different view and enables them to support it in a different way yeah so, yeah um, i get lots of good feedback about that crisis of confidence I yeah i love it because yeah. it, it really is and i feel like that's the point of labor when you need to get your mind i always feel like um you have to like surrender at that point like you really are like <laughs> it gets <laughs> so overwhelming you're like just take me now like and you know how you hear about women having like psychedelic experiences and labor <laughs> and you really just got to go to la la land and just your body does everything you know like you just need to follow it and get your mind not right like i feel like you don't want to control your mind but you've just got to like let it go like let um let birth do a thing to you almost i don't know well that's that you know i think in the second book it's in chapter two that thing about mm -hmm. when those hormones come through and we don't fight them and women are encouraged to go into them and surrender mm -hmm. as you say of course yeah. the hormones just start to change all those brain waves mm -hmm. and women can have all these other experiences but certainly what's happening is what i call it, is that dropping that, that evolutionary regression where they're shifting out of the cerebral the thinking down into the sort of primal brainstem which knows what to do about birth so all yeah. of those i mean we see it so beautiful when it happens and then mm -hmm. my mom's just on a groove so, yeah. so and also what happens is that the mother's brain waves have shifted to this to the same brain wave rhythm as her baby so awesome. she's tuned to that baby to mm -hmm. to both in instinct about how the baby is but also it's that attunement so that when the baby comes out and is in her arms they're both really talking the same language mm -hmm. feeling language you know and at this slower brain wave state with the epidural we we rob women of all of those experiences and
if that crisis of confidence is on and there's nobody who can help them to surrender further into it and keep working with it, of course, those epidurals do come in and that changes yeah. everything then. Mm-hmm. And then we need that medical, we need the medical saving then because of what, what is done. Yeah. Just one last thing I wanted to say is that the second book, in a way, it's about a few other things, but yeah, in talking about that crisis of confidence, that crisis of confidence can come just because it's a tough physical gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Physical gig. Mm-hmm. For first labor. And so we get to a point just like we might in a fun run or what have you, where we don't like it. And, and we just, and our culture tells us, Anyway, you poor thing, you don't have to, you don't have to suffer so. Yes, yeah. saviour. It's mm. very, very undermining. But mm. also for some women, their life story or their present life can have psychological pain, not just the physiological pain, but psychological pain that can mm. make those crises of confidence much more complexly layered much more um yeah problematic about how how to work through them so in that second book i'm laying out a lot of that stuff and again Mm -hmm. you know if women have those difficult life stories that might play out in psychological pain either in the birth or in the early postnatal time yeah we know that the continuity of care midwifery programs are just magic for for those situations with women who have difficult stories to that need supporting so yeah it's the yeah. gold standard. We want that continuity of care. That will be, if there's any politically active, you know, or um, women up around your way who are passionate mm. about birth and want to get some political action, that would be the thing they'd be pushing for, some more continuity of care. Yeah, yeah. In those situations. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And it's like this time of day too, so I'm so thankful you... Gave me some of your time. So yeah. hi to everybody who's out there listening. So beautiful to yes. have the opportunity to talk to you. And Sarah, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It's been it's a gift for us all <laughs> to listen. So okay. thank you, Ria. Thank you.